Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of The Remote Real Estate Investor. I'm Michael Album here, and in the last episode, we spoke about using professional property management. In today's episode, we're gonna be talking about using self-management. We get a chance to interview Chris Bennett, who's actually self-managing numerous properties for himself. So let's get into it. Now we've got with us Chris Bennett, who does a lot of his own self-management. So welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor. Yeah, right on. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your background and, and what you've been doing with, uh, with self-management as opposed to using property managers. Yeah, so since 2004, did a lot of single-family rental stuff, grew a lot in 2012, actually exponentially in 2012 and didn't know what I would be doing with a manager at that point. It just became to be too many properties to have a manager where I also felt like there was a way that I could manage remotely. Currently have nine in one neighborhood that are under self-management. And with that, I've collected a couple of assets to do that. In Pittsburgh, where I've purchased properties through Roofstock on the site, I use a great manager there. And then in Atlanta, I've gone back to self-management as far as capturing the tenants. But I will turn that over to management as soon as I capture some tenants. A couple of those are, are open for rent right now. So just kind of whatever works per market is really what I've been doing. But as far as self-managing, I've been doing self-management since 2012, specifically on the nine in Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. I, wow, I've got so many questions for you. So you started investing in 04, right? Yes. And you used professional management out the gates until 2012? Yes. And I was very green, if you will. And I felt like it was the smart thing to do would be to have management represent me. I didn't know what I was doing. And plus, I was very busy in my career. So kept that going. The professional management in those properties actually ended up costing a little bit more because the managers were very diligent on keeping the properties in perfect condition. I don't follow that process that they did. And I found it to be a little too expensive as far as they collected 12K in rents. And I ended up giving three to 4,000 a year to those managers. So not just on the monthlies, but on small repairs that may or may not have needed to have been done. But as a new investor, I didn't know what I should and shouldn't repair. So I would recommend always listen to your manager. But now that I'm more experienced, I probably would push back on some of these repairs. And I also have been managing my managers recently to set their expectations as far as what I need. But as far as self-managing, 2012 was the kind of turning point. Okay. So now, so fast forward eight years, so now we're hit 2012. You've, you've got some experience under your belt. You've got some more deals under your belt. You've got some more properties under ownership. You made the decision, enough with the managers. I can do this myself. For the most part at that time, yes, I decided that I was going to go ahead and find my own tenants. I definitely had some negative experiences with tenants and I developed a process to capture tenants, which was to target the 
employer nearby myself using Zillow, et cetera. And then I also changed my technique from one year to two year leases. What I found was that the managers were very helpful to find people, but actually I could pre-market and jump on it in a much faster, more responsive manner if I did the advertising myself. And then once I started realizing that I'm good at digital marketing these properties, using whatever resources are out there via Zillow, Craigslist, whatever medium was possible, I found that if I could do the screening myself, I would actually save the money on the management piece. And then from there, I didn't have to pay the management fee, which was a whole month's rent, which when you have nine houses, that ends up being $9,000 a year. So I'm not against management at all. Obviously, I'm still using managers. But in the overall scheme of things, I wanted to actually have the personal connection to the tenant as well. I'm doing very aggressive marketing. And then I'll also give a discount if you happen to work at the local regional hospital, which is only six blocks away from those nine houses. So if you happen to work at Greenville Memorial, you get a $25 discount. And if you do a two-year lease with me, I will give you $25 more off your rent starting the second year that you've completed as long as you've had on-time payments for the first year. Wow. So that's almost, I mean, that's almost directly counterintuitive to, I think, what so many other people do in market as opposed to market increases for the rent. You're actually giving a decrease as an incentive for people to stay. Yes, because I'll lose that $1,200. I'd rather give away 25 bucks a month. And then additionally, my tenants do the showings for me when they're about to leave. So 60 days out, I ask them, is it okay if we set a couple of dates? And then I start putting the properties up 60 days early. For instance, right now I have one near the hospital that the people are moving out in May. I know that already. So I've asked them to pick a Saturday where they can be home from X time to X time. And then I drive all the people to only come during that time so that they're not bothered. But I don't have any downtime. The, that property will be rented May 1. Wow, that's that's awesome. That's great. So how did you combat the the kind of stereotypical fears of being a property manager and owner when everyone talks about, oh, you're going to get the, the midnight phone calls for the broken toilets and the emergency calls for this and that. Was that scary to you when you first took over? And, and how real are those type of situations? That's a very interesting question, Michael. So the funny thing is about that timing, right? So I was in an industry that was in vast decline at that time. Okay. So I actually had more time to worry about it. Right now, obviously, I work for Roofstock and I work from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. If your boss is listening, you work from 8 to 10. Oh, right. Exactly. (laughs) I work from 8 to 10 p.m. every day. I was lucky to have that time off when I made that jump. From those nine properties, I got a lot of experience from having time off and being able to address those issues myself. I still managed them remotely, but in an instance where things were really bad or something like that, I was able to spend time on it. Currently, I set aside a few hours a week for the financial management of the properties. I'm not really good at that. So I use a company called Stessa that helps me with all those ins and outs. And then additionally, as far as the fear goes, I mean, I just wake up every couple of days. I'm very fortunate that the properties are on the East Coast 
And before I start working at Roofstock at 8 a.m., I can wake up at, you know, 6.30 or 7, do a half an hour of outbounding if there's anything I need to do because it's already 9 a.m. their time at 6 a.m. my time. So it's very interesting that that turned out well. If you don't like to wake up early, that could be something different. So, yeah, super interesting. Hopefully that answered the question. There shouldn't be that much fear today because there's so many tools out there to help you. What, what are some other tools that you've, you've been able to leverage to help make this a reality for you? It used to be Angie's List, but now it's HomeAdvisor, right? So HomeAdvisors come out. If you have a problem, you can just go on Yelp, HomeAdvisor, or Angie's List to find quality folks, right? So people are always worried about the midnight phone call and the midnight phone call is going to happen, right? So, so what? That's just part of the game. But really uh, what's also part of the game is that the tenant has to let the vendor in regardless. So having a third party involved doesn't necessarily mean to need to happen, right? So, oh my God, what if something happens? Well, you're going to have to let the tenant let the folks in to do the repairs. Let's say there's a plumbing issue. You just go on HomeAdvisor and find a vendor and let them know that the tenant will let them in and you're going to pay by credit card and make sure that they have five stars. It's not that hard. And then if once you find that that vendor has been okay and you're okay with that market, then that's totally fine as well. So it's Today's world is a little even different than 2012 when I was there and way different than 2004 where I only had Craigslist and a phone to try and find a plumber. You can find a, a myriad of vendors with great reviews. So Yeah, that's fantastic. And so once you find a good vendor, do you keep them as kind of your go-to person or are you hitting up Angie's List for each and every service call? So they're going to give you their best quality the first time and there's plenty of folks. So the answer is I try to only call them once. Ah, interesting. Okay. And have you ever put that responsibility on the tenant and say, oh, you, you need a plumbing fix? Well, go call a plumber and I'll pay for it. No. Never. No. Because I'm going to make better judgments financially for myself than a tenant will. Makes total sense. And what about using home warranties? Is that something that you've ever done, would, would ever do? I like home warranties if the realtor provides them, and I have had some really good experiences with home warranties, money that I would have had to have spent, especially if you're buying a property. Let's say that let's say you're in negotiation and the HVAC is seven years old. I would definitely sign for a home warranty because those repairs, it probably wouldn't warrant a full replacement, but the reality is that the home warranty folks will come out and take care of a repair. So it's a very good thing to have, especially the first year out when you are kind of have already spent a large amount of capital to secure the property. I would definitely either ask for it in the contract or pay for it at closing if the seller doesn't provide it. Okay. And is that something that you'd maintain or you do maintain going forward even the year after? No, because then I know about the property. And then I'm also kind of a freak about my mechanicals as a property manager of my own properties. Sure. You're really on the ball, making sure things are up to snuff. If I buy one that has a tenant inside and they move out, then I immediately try to spend $17,000 on the property when the tenants vacate it. So I'm very strange about that. People don't understand my technique, even internal to my family. My wife is like, why do we have to do this? (laughs) 
It's like, because it's, <laughs> it's going to make our lives so much easier down the road. You know, why do we have to do this is automatically doing BRRR every single time that I have a property that I haven't touched, then I'm going to go through it. New roof, new HVAC, either one kitchen upgrade or, or add a bathroom or make some square footage. So that's really by going through the properties. I also save myself on management costs because I know what's going to go bad on the property or I've replaced what's going to be a huge capital expenditure and I'm in control of the timing, right? So by doing our new roof, you know, someone asked me, why do you do a new roof? Well, you know what? I've I've got 20 years now on that property. Right. And and not only that, yeah. And it's not going to go bad in the rain time when, when prices are double, right? I can hit it. At, I can hit it in May when it's not so raining, you know, where there's not a huge volume of people harassing roofers to go out. And in, in that instance, my roofs are costing me 3,500 to five grand. Whereas if there's an emergency and the whole roof needed to be replaced in the rain, that'd be eight grand to 10 grand, no problem. So right. by, by doing these techniques in advance, I'm actually saving my family money, even though my wife disagrees. So it's one of those things you pay for now, you pay for it later. And when you pay for it later, it's probably going to be more expensive. Right. And then I also end up passing through some of the plumbing, passing through some of the electrical. I automatically replace every service panel, no matter what. And I make sure that there's no aluminum wiring in any of the service panels. I'm very much a mechanicals freak. All of my water heaters are new. I mean, I I literally drove Uber extra time in 2012 to make sure I could buy a water heater. I used to drive Uber till I had a water heater and I would stop driving. Okay, next week. Okay. (laughs) So every property has a new water heater from 2012. So I've still got five more years left um, on those. So that's great, Chris. So, I mean, you really know your stuff. And it's very apparent just from talking to you that you're very well versed on these things. They have no idea what they're looking at when they read a home inspection, let alone can can imagine themselves knowing the lifespan of an HVAC or a water heater. So how, how did you get to be so well versed in this stuff? Just You just have to go buy stuff. I mean, that's really <laughs> it. Just go buy it. Don't worry about it. Make sure you have a few bucks in the bank. I mean, literally, you could sit there and stare at properties for hours and hours when I'm working with folks, I like to bring up a property that has all those things already included in the mortgage, right? So if you're going to pay $150,000 for a property and you're like, hey, you know, new roof, new HVAC, all these things have been done, that's inside your mortgage spread out over 15 or 30 years. That's a great place to be, right? Because then you have a running asset. When you're looking in the arena of Oh, I want a 20 people say tell me all the time they want a year 2000 or newer house. It's like, I'd actually rather have a 1979 house that has been totally gone through and pay less for that house because you're actually still buying a 20-year-old roof, a 20-year-old HVAC, and a 20-year-old electrical and 20-year-old flooring and carpet when you buy a a 2000 or newer house. So actually, being aware of what's been done is really key, and the inspector uh, reading through both inspection reports is really key. But yeah, definitely... Definitely try to find those things inside every deal or have money ready to do them and, and just kind of account for that. Like I wouldn't buy a property unless I had $5,000 to back me up. Any property at all, ever. Yeah, because stuff pops up. Stuff pops up and then people call me and they're a little bit disappointed after they purchase a property 
even a 2011 property could still need $3,500. Yeah. So I get this question all the time and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on it being an owner and property manager for your CapEx reserve. Do you, you have a separate account for that? I have an Amex card for that. Yeah. <laughs> so are you reserving money? My, my CapEx reserve is a little green card that says Amex on it. <laughs> Those are the best kind. They have really high limits. Unlimited limits. Yeah. And be careful if you're that's doing self-managing uh, not to run up your card on Home Depot. Yeah, that's a super great point. Home Depot has a retail type of expenditure and it really hurts your credit after you hit the half mark. My credit went from 710 down to 640 when I bought 10 washers because I thought it was so great to have this financeable washing machines. You know, I was like, oh, I'm going to buy 10 washers and 10 dryers at Home Depot. And they popped 6,000 onto my card and my credit just plummeted, even though I didn't have to pay for them for six months, which was the whole point, right? You get this 180 days free, no interest, but actually it, right. it made it it made it very difficult for me to go and buy other properties because my rate was so high because I did because I used a consumer card to purchase stuff. So be careful on using Home Depot. It's a great asset if you want to make improvements and you don't want to pay for them right away, but definitely watch out for that as far as it will lower your credit score to use that type of card. So keep an Amex if you can get one. Yeah, super great to know. Super great to know. Any other tips and tricks that you've picked up for maybe someone who's just starting out and wants to self-manage or they've you know purchased a property in their, in their backyard, an investment property in their backyard and, and want to self-manage? I would say do a video call with the tenant and ask them to walk around their, ah. their own house, right? Where they are today. Interesting. So that's I, a really great tip. I'll do, you know, FaceTime if they if they want to do a zoom call, whatever, whatever it takes to get them to see their face and know that you're a person and they're a person, right? People don't know that I drove Uber for their water heaters. They just think I'm some rich guy, which I'm not right. I'm, I'm a regular person. Money bags, landlord. Yeah. yeah. You must be rich. No, it's not true. <laughs> and I want, and I want them to know that my job is to do one thing. My job is to provide you with a clean, safe, well-heated property that's good for you and your family. Your job as a tenant is to pay me. And if you fail to do that, then I'm going to fail fail and remove that property, right? So getting to know that person face-to-face -face, and then also having them walk around their own house to see how they're treating the other landlord's property is super critical. What does your kitchen look like? Are you? Is there going to be rats and roaches when you leave? Is your dog peeing on the floor? Finding out those things uh, in, in an interpersonal communication with people is probably the strongest asset you have today with digital acumen, right? Like I can definitely meet this person over the internet. Right. And if they can't use the phone to communicate via video, then they're not going to be able to electronically deposit the money into your bank account either. So there's really not a reason to interact with them because you're going to need, you're going to need that to be done. So definitely digital acumen from their side as well. Are these people going to be able to direct deposit electronically every single month for you? And if not, would they be willing to drive to the bank um, and make sure that the funds are there? Another tip about people putting money in your account, make sure that your rent is 1097 instead of 1100 so that you know each person's who's putting in the rent if you only have one account. So Tom pays 1097 
but Sheila pays 1098, even though the rents are really 1100. And the reason for that is you know who's paying what, so you don't get confused as you grow. So that, that'll help you watch the bank accounts. Interesting. Man, super great yeah. points. And then one thing that my wife does, which is really smart, is she has an email address for each and every property. And then all the banking stuff goes to that email address for that property. All of the mortgages, leases, all the stuff about that property goes to that email address. Any statements or anything regarding that particular stuff goes to that email address, which, which at the end of the month then I'm really bad at it. She's good at it, but she looks in there and then adds all that stuff to drive for that email address. So as you grow, it's better to have a separate email address per property. Even when you buy the first one from Roofstock, it should, all those transactional paperwork should go right to that email address. So set up an email address or a Dropbox if that's what you prefer. I prefer an email address so that they're all bucketed. And then send every document, your rent roll, your payment history, everything goes to that one email address. It's really a strong thing to, to establish from day one, property one. That's great. I've got separate file folders for every property, but I never thought about having an email address. That's really clever. You can even ask Google if you use Gmail to capture every single thing in Drive. So everything that has an attachment automatically goes in Drive. So it's, it takes a little bit of the management away. And you can close and have all the statements come to your personal email, but I immediately just forward those to to the other emails. The property-specific ones? Yes. That's great. Okay, I've got one more question for you, and then I'm going to let you out of here. Cool. Ready. So one thing that's always kind of scared me and been on the forefront of my mind is state-specific and, and county-specific landlord-tenant laws. Can you speak to us a little bit about how you overcome those, how you got well-versed and familiar with those out in, in, in Pittsburgh? So in Pittsburgh, I actually just started buying there. I'm not that familiar since I've been at Roofstock. What I will say is, is that I do ask them to sign an addendum stating that I will begin to process their eviction on day six of their late payment. And they sign that. And whether that's legal or not is kind of a question in each market. Right. When I ask them to sign that addendum stating that this is going to happen, it does add a layer in both our minds that I will be I will be the best landlord possible for you, but I'm also going to start evicting you beginning on the sixth day that you're late. And so that's not legal in some areas, I, I'm assuming, but in Georgia, PA, and uh, South Carolina, everyone has signed it. So I don't know if that overrides the law. I'm just trying to get the psychology of, hey, you're going to have washing machine and dryer, you're going to have the nicest, cleanest house, and you actually will be paying less than other folks. But if you let me down, I will start to evict you because I have right. gone through the, the cycle of people saying they're going to pay and believing them, and then they don't. I'm just really hard and fast on on having them sign that. So it may not even be enforceable, but I make everyone do it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And I lied. I've got one more question as a follow-up. With regards to evictions, what's that process been like managing that from a distance? That is a difficult place to be. And so I avoid that by my front side. Right. Your front end process. Of who I pick. So I haven't had to process an eviction four years, four years since I've had to evict, evict someone. And after that last eviction four years ago, did you go back and revamp your, your front end process? Yeah. That's when I went to the you know video. That's when I went to 
uh, two earners, if possible, two, two incomes. And I also went to 4X and I also chose to lower the rents. So oddly enough, the folks that can't pay are the ones that rush in and will take a higher rent. So that's kind of a very interesting statement. People probably wouldn't would want to get the most money. I want to get the longest tenant, right? They're paying off my property. I, I need them to stay right. longer. So I'll let a property be vacant longer. If I can capture someone that has two incomes, they'll stay for two years and they'll, they have the ability to, to interact with me digitally. That's really kind of the upgrade, if you will. That's so great. Yeah, because vacancy is what kills profitability. Right. And so if you can minimize that or even eliminate it, you run the numbers. Clearly, you have the 25 bucks a month is, is meaningless when compared to losing a month or two months rent. Yep. On the other side of that, like I just mentioned, I'm okay to wait for the right tenants, right? I'm okay. I'm yeah. okay. So, so the technique that I use on rents is I start very high 60 days before, see who shows up, right? Okay, 60 days, maybe 20 days have passed. I'll drop the rent, see who shows up. When I get the tenant pool that seems to be good credit, their income is 3x, of what the rent is, and there are two earners. When I get to that pool of people, it's usually 50 or $60 less than when I first started. But I have 60 days, so these other folks move out, right? So by pre-marketing the property in advance has been really helpful. And, and the thing about property managers is they don't do that. They wait till the property's vacant to start marketing the property. Right. I don't know if that's a legal thing or, or there's any reason behind it, but hey, it's 2020. I have pictures of these properties. I say, don't disturb the tenant. And then I make an appointment with six or seven people and drive throughput. Maybe only you only need one tenant, right? So by dropping the property price, the first people that come to the table are unrealistic. They just want to live somewhere nice or cool or pretty. They typically don't have the income at the higher level. When I drop down to $50, $50 less, all of a sudden, 10 people show up that are qualified to live in that property. That's something that, that is really helpful. I don't necessarily care that much about credit score. Um, I do ask them to send me the top copy of their credit karma. So screenshot your credit karma. I do, I do deliver. I do ask them to deliver that. I don't pull their credit and I don't do background checks. I just want to see two incomes. And I don't recommend that for anyone who's doing new stuff. Everyone who's buying something new should be using a property manager for sure to get that experience. So just to be really clear, sure. this is your first time out. Don't listen to any of this whole thing. Get a manager. <laughs> That's great. And do you charge an application fee just out of curiosity? No, I do not charge an application fee. And I, and I definitely just ask to see their paycheck stubs and then verify that they work there. Okay, cool. Man, this is, I feel, uh, I feel guilty. This has been totally self-serving to you to get to ask you all these great questions. Chris, thanks so much for, for hanging in there with me, man. I really appreciate it. Any final thoughts or things you want to share with, with folks listening? Yeah, I just think that tenant risk is a huge, huge thing that you can look at cash flow numbers all day. I think that your managers, you know, we have some of the greatest managers in the United States. So with our platform, but, but I think that, that you have to think about tenant risk. And you also have to be accepting to not squeeze every dollar out of people. Think about having a higher quality tenant and ask your managers how that works. Or if you want to ask us, the folks who are, work here, how that 
affects you, definitely look for the higher quality tenant over the dollar is really the final thing there. Yeah, such a great point. Such a great point. Well, Chris, thank you again. So appreciate the time that you spent with us today and uh, looking forward to catching up again soon. All right, cool. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. Alrighty, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. That was our show today. Thanks so much for hanging in there. Go ahead and leave us a review on anywhere where you listen to your podcast. And actually, we're doing a promotion right now since we're, it's kind of a new podcast to uh, stir the pot a little bit. If you leave us a review and then send a screenshot of that review over to Emil at eshore, that's E-S-H-O-U-R at roofstock.com. We'll send you guys a promo coupon code for a free coaching session with one of the coaches here. So it'll be a free 15 minutes. We can kind of go over any questions you have about your personal investment plan and uh, get access to the coaches here for a little bit. So thanks so much for listening. Happy investing. We'll see you next time.